I'm Kamal Hussain, and I will be speaking on international law and the challenge of change. As we complete the first decade of the 21st century, we can step back and review how international law and the international community have evolved over a century. The 20th century has been a century of accelerated changes. The impact of two world wars brought about fundamental changes in the composition of the international community. Colonial empires passed into history and were replaced by a host of independent states. In 1945, the UN Charter was adopted by 51 states. Today, 193 states are members of the United Nations. Progressive development of international law has been necessary in order to meet the perceived needs for more law in many fields as new challenges are faced by the international community. The peoples of the United Nations, when adopting the UN Charter in 1945, had affirmed, quote, their faith in fundamental rights, in the dignity of the human person, and the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small. The 60th anniversary of the, United Nations, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was observed three years ago. In 1948, when the world was emerging from the devastation of the Second World War, in which gross human rights violations and unprecedented acts of inhumanity had been perpetrated, the Universal Declaration was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly with 48 votes in favor, none against, and eight abstentions. This was an act of faith, of a shared conviction in human rights as the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. The existing global reality at the time was one in which the majority of the world's people remained deprived of their human rights. They still lived under colonial rule, and a strident apartheid continued aggressively to promote racial discrimination. Authoritarian regimes continued to oppress peoples. The Declaration was thus a bold expression of resolve to change the existing reality, as it proclaimed in the opening words of its operative part, I quote, as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations, to the end that every individual and every organ of society, keeping this declaration constantly in mind, shall strive by teaching and education to promote respect for these rights and freedoms, and by progressive measures, national and international, to secure their universal and effective recognition and observance, both among the peoples of member states themselves and among the peoples of territories under their jurisdiction. It was thus a pledge to strive at the national and international level to promote the observance of human rights the world over. While not law in the traditional sense, the Universal Declaration set forth the basic principles upon which subsequent conventions would be based. At least some of the principles proclaimed in the Universal Declaration have ripened into customary international law binding on all states. In the subsequent decades, popular movements for democracy and independence across the world invoked the Universal Declaration as they struggled for their rights. Women and men of different faiths, races and cultures were inspired to challenge colonial and authoritarian regimes and to vindicate their human rights. They reaffirmed this commitment in their new constitutions, 
which invariably drew upon the Universal Declaration and the United Nations Human Rights Instruments in formulating their own bills of rights. This is something to which I can testify from my own experience when I chaired our Constitution Drafting Committee in 1972, after Bangladesh gained independence through a war of liberation in 1971. In drafting the Constitution, we drew upon universally recognized formulations of human rights derived from international instruments. This experience has been re repeated in the creation of other recent constitutions. The new South African constitution, adopted in the early 90s, unequivocally assures universally recognized human rights to all in a multicultural, multi-religious society. This is the common experience of the majority of the states cutting across all the continents, which contradict the view reflected in the argument that Asian values are at odds with human rights. On that view, human rights are derived from an alien ideology exported to Asia and Africa from the West, with roots in a particular religious or cultural tradition. This is a misreading of history. Respect for human rights itself calls for respect for cultural and religious pluralism. Neither history nor anthropology validates the claim of any particular religion or geographical region to be treated as the exclusive fountainhead of civil and political rights. Those who in Africa or Asia violate these rights use the alien ideology argument in a self-serving way to justify their violations. In doing so, they deny history as well as their own religious and cultural traditions. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus and Sikhs had fought along with Christians and Jews against fascism during the Second World War. Human rights had been invoked by Asians and Africans of different faiths and cultures in their sustained and ultimately successful movements for independence against colonialism and against apartheid. The fact that many African and Asian nations were not represented in San Francisco when the Charter of the United Nations was adopted, or were not present when the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, does not detract from the universal recognition since accorded to them by the peoples of all nations. This was reaffirmed in the World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna in 1993 by representatives of governments and even more powerfully by members of civil society present there. Their spirited participation in that conference had made it impossible even for the hesitant among the government representatives to deny universality. It was a non-governmental forum, especially its younger participants from all over the world who in 1993 breed new life into the Universal Declaration. The Vienna Declaration recorded a global consensus on human rights issues on which there had been divergence earlier based on considerations of expediency of those who had special interests to protect. Thus, the Vienna Declaration proclaimed, A, the universal nature of these rights and freedoms is beyond question. B, all human rights, civil and political, as well as economic, social and cultural, are universal and indivisible, interdependent and interrelated. The international community must treat human rights globally in a fair and equal manner, on the same footing and at the same emphasis, and that D, women's rights are human rights. I will now say something about the Universal Declaration at the international level. The work of the United Nations in the field of human rights has evolved in several different phases. 
The first phase began immediately after the creation of the United Nations in 1945. It was primarily concerned with standard setting. This work has continued to the present. A UN compilation of human rights instruments published in 1993 lists 94 conventions, declarations, and other international instruments on human rights. It includes the two international covenants, one on civil and political rights, and the other on economic and social and cultural rights, which together with the Universal Declaration are termed the International Bill of Rights. Other major standard-setting instruments include the Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, the Convention Against Torture, the Convention Against Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The second phase consisted in discussion in UN fora of alleged violations of human rights in specific countries. While early General Assembly resolutions criticized the human rights situation in a few specific countries, public discussion of specific violations soon became limited, apart from questions of decolonization, to draw attention to serious human rights violations arising out of apartheid in South Africa and in the territories occupied after the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. Following adoption of Resolution 1235 by the Economic and Social Council in 1967, which authorized the Council's subsidiary bodies to discuss the violation of human rights in any country, there was a significant increase in the number of country situations which came up for review. It is noteworthy General Pinochet's military coup had exposed him to charges of grave human rights violations. The highest English court, the House of Lords, in a historic judgment denied Pinochet immunity from criminal process. The reasons in support set out in one of the majority opinions recognized the significance of the progressive development of international law. I quote, the development of international law since the Second World War justifies the conclusion that by the time of the 1973 coup d'etat and since international law condemned genocide, torture, hostage-taking, and crimes against human humanity during an armed conflict or peacetime as international crimes deserving of punishment. Given this, it seems to me difficult to maintain that the commission of such high crimes may amount to acts performed in the exercise of the functions of a head of state. So uh, said Lord Stain, one of the judges uh, whose opinion I'm co I've quoted from. The final act of the Rome Conference, which adopted the convention, established the International Criminal Court, can also be claimed as an achievement of the global human rights movement. The third stage consisted of creating mechanisms to implement accepted norms more effectively. These included creation of a procedure under which individual communications concerning a consistent pattern of gross violations of human rights could be examined and rapporteurs and working groups appointed to investigate human rights violations in specific countries or to report on particular types of human rights violations, for example, torture or disappearances. Thus we have, among others, a UN special rapporteur on violence against women, and one on extrajudicial and summary executions, as well as on countries from where gross violations are reported, such as Myanmar. 
Now let me say a few words about development of the Universal Declaration at the national level. The profound impact of the Universal Declaration at the national level is reflected in the constitutions of newly independent states and societies in transition from an authoritarian towards a democratic order. These constitutions invariably declare a commitment to human rights as they strive to establish a democratic and participatory system of government and to achieve significant social and economic development. The latter is particularly true in developing societies which have inherited poverty and social inequality as a part of the legacy of their colonial or authoritarian past. In the Indian constitution, a dichotomy was maintained between civil and political rights, the first generation rights, as they were called, which were enforceable by courts, and economic, social, and cultural rights, the second generation rights, as these were described, which were not judicially enforceable, but which parliaments and governments were urged to make their best efforts to implement, subject to availability of resources. Third generation rights, such as the right to development and the right to a healthy environment, had not emerged when the constitution was adopted in India in 1949. A directive principle was inserted into the Constitution in 1976 by the 42nd Amendment providing that the state shall endeavor to protect and improve the environment. This problem was described by one of the architects of the new South African Constitution, Justice Albie Sachs, in the following terms, I quote, The fundamental Constitution problem, however, is not to set one generation of rights against another, but to harmonize all three. The web of rights is unbroken in fabric, simultaneous in operation, and all extensive in character. The achievement of first-generation rights is fundamental to the establishment of democracy and the overcoming of national oppression. But for the vote to have meaning, for the rule of law to have content, the vote must be the instrument for the achievement of second- and third-generation rights. It would be a sad victory if the people had the right every five or so years to emerge from their forced removal hovels and second-rate group area homesteads to go to the poles, only thereafter to return to their inferior houses, inferior education, and inferior jobs. International law had provided strength to the movement to end apartheid. The emergence in 1994 of the new South Africa, a free, democratic, non-racial South Africa, marked the end of apartheid. The South African Constitution, in addition to providing for judicially enforceable political and economic rights and for an independent Human Rights Commission, has a number of provisions which secure for members of civil society access to information, access to the courts to enforce fundamental rights, and access to the legislative process itself. Article 32 provides that everyone has the fundamental right of access to any information held by the state. Article 38 provides that any person may approach a competent court for enforcement of fundamental rights, and any person acting in the public interest or anyone acting on behalf of another person who cannot act in his or her own name, or anyone acting as a member of or in the interest of a group or class of persons, thus elevating public interest or social action litigation into a constitutional remedy. Article 59 guarantees public access to the legislative process by providing that the National Assembly must facilitate 
public involvement in the legislative and other processes of the assembly and its committees and must conduct its business in an open manner and hold its sittings and those of its committees in public. This faith in the people and in civil society is a fundamental pillar of the South African constitution. The relevance of civil and political rights in the realization of economic and social rights has been acknowledged and explained by the Nobel laureate, Professor Amartya Sen, thus. Civil and political rights, I quote, civil and political rights give people the opportunity not only to do things for themselves, but also to draw attention forcefully to general needs and to demand appropriate public action. Whether and how a government responds to needs and sufferings may well depend on how much pressure is put on it and the exercise of political rights, such as voting, criticizing, protesting, and so on, can make a real difference. For example, one of the remarkable facts in the terrible history of famines in the world is that no substantial famine has ever occurred in any country with a democratic form of government and a relatively free press. The global human rights movement, which draws sustenance from the Universal Declaration, has promoted regional mechanisms and human rights instruments and succeeded in establishing human rights commissions, women's commissions, the Office of Ombudsman. Judicial activism has been encouraged through resort to public interest in social action litigation. National courts are generating a rich human rights jurisprudence, drawing upon the Universal Declaration and other international instruments. Supreme courts in Asia, such as in Bangladesh, India, and the Philippines, in their judgments refer to the Rio Declaration, to CEDAW, the Genocide Convention, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The reports of the Commonwealth Judicial Colloquia refer to the increasing number of cases in which national courts have applied international human rights norms. The Universal Declaration has been used to interpret and develop human rights norms in a growing number of countries. In October 1991, at the Harare Commonwealth Summit, a declaration was adopted by which it made a fundamental commitment to good governance, democracy, and human rights. The Foreign Affairs Committee of the United Kingdom House of Commons reviewed the state practice on democratic governance in the light of that declaration and interpreted that the expression free and democratic political processes used in that declaration should be understood thus, quote, free and democratic process are taken to be those which every citizen has the right to take part in the conduct of public affairs directly or through freely chosen representatives. The basis of the authority of government is the will of, of the people expressed in periodic and genuine elections by universal suffrage and held by secret ballot. This is consistent with Article 21 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and Article 25 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The practice and experience of states over several decades provided the basis for the juristic formulation of an emerging right to democratic governance. Professor Thomas Frank traced the transformation of the democratic entitlement from moral prescription to international law obligation and found its basis in part on custom and in part on collective interpretation of treaties. Three components of democratic entitlement identified by him are principles of self-determination, freedom of expression, and electoral rights. He explained the role of international law in this process in these words. Again, I quote, 
The rules and processes for realizing these rights are reinforced and supplemented by the normative canons embodied in the United Nations Charter, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, the International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid, the Declaration on the Elimination of All Forms of Intolerance and of Discrimination Based on Religion or Belief, and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. These universally based rights are supplemented by regional instruments, such as the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, the American Convention on Human Rights, the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, the Copenhagen Document and the Paris Charter. He concluded, and I quote, both textually and in practice, the international system is moving towards a clearly designated democratic entitlement with national governance validated by international standards and systematic monitoring of compliance. The task is to perfect what has been so wondrously begun. Thank you.